Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine. Hosted by me, Danielle Robay, And me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Jon Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late-night legend Jon Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Molly Jongfast, and this is Fast Politics, where we discuss the top political headlines with some of today's best minds. And Jack Smith has asked a judge to reinstate a gag order on Trump or punish him with jail time. We have such an interesting show today. Political scientist and OG Norm Ornstein joins us to talk about the growing radicalization of the House GOP with the elevation of Mega Mike Johnson to Speaker of the House. Then we'll talk to Eurasia Group President Ian Bremmer about the world on fire. But first, we have the host of the Origin Story podcast, the one British person we have on here, Ian Dunt. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Ian. Well, thank you very much. Thanks for having me. We're like best friends now, so. I really think that's pushing it. (laughs) 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 We've we've moved beyond acquaintances. Fuck you. So anyway, well, I'm not going to be quite as nice to Ian as I was before, let me tell you. (laughs) So let's talk about your very fucked up country. Again, I do want to say, at least you don't have, there was a member of Congress who tweeted out a picture. It was from January, I guess, which I guess makes that better or less fake newsy or whatever. A picture of January of the Speaker of the House praying on the floor on his knees on the floor of Congress with a bunch of other lunatics. So I don't know. We may have eclipsed you again as worst country. Discuss. All you've done is been foolish enough to allow them to take photos and film this stuff. Because (laughs) MPs here, they do this every single day. You know, they start every single session in the Commons with a prayer <laughs> in which, for some inexplicable reason, they all turn around and face the wall and pray to God before they start legislating. Which actually, given the way the Britain legislates, is actually probably not an, a particularly foolish way of looking at it. But for that period, they cut the cameras. So you can't actually watch them engage in this completely deranged spectacle. So really, the only improvement is that we just made sure no one gets to see us like, like lunatics. When you were last on this podcast, which was either yesterday or four <laughs> months ago, you said to me that Richie Sudak was, I don't want to say you were positive because that is a misnomer, but you were not as negative as I've heard you. No, because he remains better than any recent prime minister well, for the last sort of, let's say, seven Are years. Are you talking about Liz? Let us talk of Liz. I'm talking about Liz Truss, who was easily like the most catastrophic prime minister 
that this country has ever had, really. I mean, you don't usually have prime ministers that last for 47 days and result in, you know, the death of the queen <laughs> and the complete collapse of the British economy. I want to fact check here. Liz Lightus Tuss did not kill the queen. Please add she that to the record. She did not murder the, the, the queen. queen. The beloved that, that is on the record. queen. Yes, continue. However, can it really be a complete coincidence <laughs> that in the short period of time that this monstrously inept figure was in charge? The queen just thought, that's it, I'm done. After nearly a century, I'm done with this stuff. It can't, it can't it can just be a coincidence. No, no, it's true. Let the fact check reflect that we do actually think that Liz did murder the queen. Continue. I don't think I can get done for LIBOR as long as I'm saying this in the US, so that should be fine. No, we are very loose over here, so should be fine. And then, you know, there was Boris Johnson, whose ego was surpassed only by his complete indifference towards the truth or any kind of basic moral standard. Theresa May, you know, one of the most blisteringly reactionary, anti-immigrant, authoritarian prime ministers this country's ever had. And before that, you've got David Cameron, who was like a human void in an expensive suit. <laughs> so, you know, when these are the comparisons, he's probably better than all of them. However, that does not make him good. He is just <laughs> appallingly bad at government. And you, and you look at him and you think, like in any sensible country, this guy would have been a kind of anonymous junior minister, like lost in the bowels of the treasury somewhere. And no one would have had to know what his actual name was. Because this country doesn't work at all, he somehow has found himself right at the peak of the political system. And he's starting to do proper damage, like really quite venal, right-wing mean-spirited, self-interested political damage. And it's, it's, it's a real spectacle to think of the, just the extent of the damage and the tininess of the mind and of the political vision which is, uh, which is created. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that. We have a complicated political crisis going on right now, which is mushrooming into more and more but he did, Richie Sudak did go to Israel in that chain of leaders to go there to try to prevent what hopefully will not happen. So that was something. You're very generous, I think, to think that he's trying to prevent something. I, I think he's, it's more a kind of look at me context. Okay, so explain. Well, I think realistically, certainly when I've been in Israel, the impression that I got was that there's no country that has influence over Israel apart from the US, and even then, not necessarily all the time. But certainly any other country that decides to go over there, I mean, you, you don't really realistically think you're going to result in a change of course, nor necessarily should you. So really, when other leaders go over there, they're really doing it for the domestic audience at home, so that they look like they're a you know, great striding international leader. Except the thing is that when it's Rishi Sunak, he looks like a head boy, a prefect at a school that's been given like a special prize to go hang out with world leaders. He just, he just looks completely embarrassingly, like backbreakingly, cringingly out of his depth. And he is, of course. I mean, he has no proper evaluation of any of the issues that he's discussing. So I don't think he really went out there to achieve anything. I think he just went out there to look like he's a proper world leader, which he is. Let's talk about what is happening, sort of the larger issues you have, an economy that continues to struggle with its own self-sanctioning. Yes. Right? I mean, <laughs> inflation is everywhere. It's problematic in the States, but you guys really have it bad. We have it bad in almost every economic way there is to have it bad. <laughs> and it's not even resulting in a recession. It's worse than that. It's just like over 10 years now of just complete stagnation. Like there's just no growth. There's no, and, and most damagingly, there's no productivity in the economy and the people can't really get to the heart of the puzzle. But we do have an impression of why this stuff happens. And it happens because we make a series of short-term, self-interested political decisions that completely undermine the investment environment and the kind of skills that you need to build in a country and the kind of regional economic performance you would want in a country. So one of those examples is obviously Brexit, you know, where you spend years upon years gibbering away like a lunatic in an assignment <laughs> about you're taking back control and, you know, the great British destiny and the land of unicorns. And in fact, all you've really managed to accomplish is putting up trade barriers with your largest trading partner. So then once the dreams all fade away, you just look at it and think, so the sum total of all of that is we're just poor it now. Mm -hmm. That's the sum accomplishment. <laughs> it, but then secondarily, look at, look at what we've just done with trains, right? This seems like a small example, it's but good. it's really indicative of the way we're governed. Yeah. So 
risk, there's a by-election, so an election in just one local area, one constituency, where there was a local debate about charges for environmentally inefficient cars. And the Tories, the Conservatives, managed to scrape a win. It's like the first win they've had in ages. It was basically because of about 500 voters on a local issue that quickly passed away. But on the basis of that, that one solitary win, Rishi Sunak decided he was going to tear up our entire environmental policy. Now, Britain is not like the US. There is no culture war on the environment. There is no political division really on the environment. Right and left, Conservatives and Labour have both signed up to the same plans, both internationally and nationally on climate change. There's belief in man-run climate change. So you don't have Fox News, is what you're saying. Well, remember, we have GB News, which is this desperate <laughs> yeah. attempt to try and eliminate it. It's an absolute shit show of the highest you, Can order. I tell you about how I was on GB News recently? Oh, I remember you went on GB. I was, it, was a, it was a gutting moment. <laughs> no, I went back on and I said, you've sanctioned yourself. You're inflation is at da-da-da percent and America's is a third or a fourth and it's because of all of your terrible financial policies. And he was like, we have to go now. <laughs> I was like, oh, God. I bet they did. So we've actually managed to build consensus on that. And just because of that by-election, because of 500 voters, Rishi Sunak just decides to detonate it, to kill the consensus and basically comes out as this big kind of like anti-environmentalist, anti-climate change action, anti-net zero figure. He starts inventing these extraordinary sort of just imaginary policies. He, he, he does a speech in Downing Street. It's the prime minister of the country saying, there is a war on meat and I'm going to stop it from happening. <laughs> so would you just think, what on earth are you doing? Have you gone completely mad? And like, what is the war on meat? What, what are the policies that are constitute a war on meat, which he is unable to <laughs> name? He starts saying local councils are forcing people to have seven rubbish bins. Would you guys call them trash cans, whatever? Completely made up. I mean, none of it exists in the actual world. He starts saying that local councils are trying to ban people from leaving their homes in order to create 15-minute cities. It's basically as if he had gone mad. And as part of this, he cancels HS2, High Speed 2. Now, this is the big rail project. Again, consensus on with both parties been being built for about 13 years. He cancels the project as part of his, I'm going to defend motorists and pull us back from this green lunacy. Starts selling off the land that was bought, starts sabotaging 13 years of work, actively undermining it, including by trying to make sure that no future government can undo the decision that he is making. Him, as an unelected prime minister, he didn't even win the election within the Conservative Party to become leader. And with zero mandate, he just decides, I'm going to cancel the project. Now, that obviously is environmentally catastrophic and morally and democratically deeply unsound. But what it also is, is indicative of why our economy struggles. Because you have businesses investing, and they invest on the basis of stability and some kind of good judgment about the economics. And then one moment, after 500 voters in one by-election, we decide, no, you know what, we're going to trash it. And all that money you invested, all the plans you made whether it's been a set up an HQ in a particular area on the basis of the connectivity that you were entitled to expect on the basis of what government told you, we're going to get rid of all of that. And in that kind of thinking, I think you get an idea of why our economy, as well as our political system, is so comatose. Yeah, that doesn't sound good. I mean... It isn't. No, it isn't. It isn't. It's national decay, kind of moral and intellectual torpor. That's, those, are, those are the headlines of... Do you guys have any kind of way to push back on this? Well, there's the election. Right. Yeah, let's talk <laughs> about the election because it's coming up. <laughs> it's coming up. He can decide when to hold it, but he has to hold it by late January 2025. Right. Uh, if he was sensible, he would do it in May because it's good weather. It's easier to get your volunteers out. And because he's basically destroyed the National Health Service. So you don't really want to run an election in the middle of winter when you're seeing lots of old people waiting in hallways, <laughs> not being seen on gurneys, dying away because of a lack of investment. I'm laughing to keep from crying. I want to point that out. Yes, Rio, I do. I do an awful lot of that as well. Also, uh, drinking. That's drinking I find helps a little bit quite a bit. As someone who's been sober since she was 19, no drinking, but laugh. I don't know how you get through politics without it. It just seems inconceivable <laughs> to me. Um, so he, he should really try and avoid any kind of election in the wintertime. 
But he's just too cowardly to hold it in spring or the summer because the truth is he can buy himself a bit more time. And right now he is consistently 20 points behind in the polls. Like that man is heading for extinction and the Conservative Party is heading for a walloping on a scale that we really haven't seen in this country for about 30 years. A kind of like generational event. People are utterly fed up with it. So he's likely to hold the election as late as he can could be in the autumn of next year or really in the winter. Or really, if he's feeling particularly cowardly, he might just go ahead and hold it in January, like just ruin everyone's Christmas as one final act of constitutional and cultural vandalism before the Conservatives drift from office. But it does seem to me, and you tell me if I'm right, because I'm looking at this from quite far away, that Keir Stormer has... I'm mispronouncing it. You're making him sound so much more exciting than he really is. <laughs> Keir Stormtrooper. For so long, I've heard people say that labor is just... And again, John Dukakis, if you're listening to this, I don't mean any offense towards your father, but that you were sort of run by a Mike dukakis kind of crew, that nobody could ever kind of get the zeal. I feel like there's been sort of an evolution a little bit. No? This isn't happening because... Keir Starmer is a particularly inspiring or charismatic figure. Right. Why would he be? Just because he's the head of a political party. I mean, you should never put one of those people as the head of your party. Yes, go on. Yes. <laughs> it's like in the Victorian period, Thomas Carlyle was talking about the husband of Harriet Taylor, who ended up marrying the philosopher John Stuart Mill. And he was trying to sort of justify why they might not want to hurt the man's feelings. And they said... He's an innocent, dull, good man. <laughs> and that's kind of what Keir Starmer is. He's, he's just an innocent, dull, good man. Like, <laughs> he has genuine decency to him. He is competent. He wants good things for the country. He wants the country to work. He comes basically from the civil service. He's a former prosecutor. You know, he's, he's going to be one of those kind of slightly technocratic kind of guys thinking, right, what are the kind of benchmark tests we'd want to assess for the health of the health service? What kind of steps would we need to get there? What's the evidence base for it? What are the kind of competent, unremarkable, unflashy people I need to put in place to implement it? And, you know, normally speaking, people would not really be into that. They usually want the more kind of Tony Blair, Boris Johnson. Oh, look at, you know, look at the charisma on this one. Actually, after the just the utter ramshackle chaos of the last few years and the commensurate decrease in Britain's standing in the world and in its material circumstances and people's day-to-day quality of life. People are really in the position where they just want someone who just seems basically like they're decent and quite competent. And Keir Starmer is both of those things. Could Labour actually win an election? No, right? Yeah, yeah. No, they're going to win. Yeah, yeah. And and the chances are they're going to win really, really big. How is that possible? I suppose the thing that's really happened is it's sort of the double whammy of Boris Johnson and Partygate, (laughs) that moment where he had those big parties in Downing Street (laughs) while telling everyone that they had to stay at home for COVID. As political scandals go, the thing that was really striking about that scandal was that the people who were most upset about it were the children. You know, your friend's children, if they would be like four years old, five years old, they understood the news story. You know, there was no complexity to it at all. It was as if someone had written a story, a moral parable for children. You know, should the man who tells you to stay at home not be staying at home and party? The answer to that is no. And so it was this huge primary colors kind of political scandal. And from that moment, the Tories never recovered. But of course, they followed that moment with Liz Truss, with just this kind of spectacle of inadequacy and chaos. So on the basis of that, their polling just bottomed out and it never came back. So, I mean, sure, Keir Starmer had to detoxify the Labour Party. He had to get rid of the anti-Semitism that was there under Jeremy Corbyn. He's had to cover himself in the national flag to get rid of the fact, you know, that image that Jeremy Corbyn had of like, right. well, I want to run the country, right. but I don't actually really like it. And you all seem like kind of, you know, ignorant reactionaries. Right, so he's had to do all the basic, you know, nuts and bolts, two plus two equals four political activity to show that you're fit to govern, including demonstrating economic competence. But apart from that, he has mostly cleaned up on the fact that people have looked at the Conservatives and particularly those two crucial moments and just thought, you know what, mate, fuck that. We'll try something else. Thank you very much. So that's what it's looking like over there is just there'll be a radical shift. Will it be a radical shift? I mean, you have a coalition government, so it's not quite the same as it is in the States, right? 
No, it, it probably won't be coalition. I mean, we've had coalitions before, but it's quite rare. We have the same electoral system as you, the first past the post system. So generally speaking, you're getting one party in charge. I mean, look, the way the things are right now, you would be looking at a very, very large majority for the Labour Party, unless the polling changes significantly. And by very large, I mean, I'm kind of talking an existential crisis for the Conservative Party. I mean, their polling is, it's, it's on the floor. The really interesting thing now is, well, I suppose it's twofold. The first is, you know, what does Labour do in power? And Labour's economic program is quite heavily based on Biden's program. There's, there's some examples that they're taking from, from the European mainland, from Germany, from Sweden, but primarily they're inspired by what Biden's doing. So it's surprisingly left-wing. You know, this is not like the Tony Blair, Bill Clinton era. This is a much more left-wing program. It's much more Keynesian program. It envisages using a fiscal stimulus in the form of public works to try and stimulate the economy, in this case, by creating a million new jobs and decarbonizing the energy grid and trying to bring back some of that climate change action that we'd seen get lost on the Sunak. The flip side of that is what happens to the Conservatives out of office? Because usually political parties right. lose power and then they go insane. But the Conservative Party has gone insane while in power. So the only way for it to go is even further into the sort of conspiracy theory right. And you see that happening now, like just the babbling gibberish that they are coming up with about you know, conspiracies against conservative thought. I mean, Nadine Dorrins, the former media secretary, she was the actual genuine secretary of state for media, has just written a book on a shadowy conspiracy to unseat several prime ministers, in which she said she went to a meeting with Google where she was told that there is a big dial that is dialed down to make sure that her own news stories about her are less prominent than they would otherwise be because she's a conservative. And you just think, like, it, this isn't even a complicated... It's, sort of, it's the kind of thing that makes QAnon look like a PhD. It's, it's just this unbelievably childlike conspiracy theory babble. And they are firmly, firmly entrenched with it. And we can see, expect to see the Conservatives become more extreme in that respect when they leave power. It's funny because that's what our House of Representatives is up to. Ian, I yes. appreciate you so much. <laughs> I wish you lived in a country that was more relevant to our discussion. <laughs> oh, I had to get it in there. But please tell, please always keep us abreast of the backwater. <laughs> it's the unbelievable and increasingly inevitable sting in the tail of a conversation with you. Hey guys, I'm home. Everyone knows that it's dad's job to be a bit of a joker. Sorry I'm late, everyone. There was an accident at the factory. Monty fell into the upholstery machine. Don't worry, though. He's fully recovered. <sighs> Good one, Dad. <sighs> Did you get the pizza for dinner? So he likes to keep everyone happy with some dad jokes. Yep, right here. I had a coupon, and it saved me a lot of dough. Well, the truth is, Dad is just a fun guy. Hey, I'm not a mushroom. Please stop. Where does he get these stupid jokes from? He listens to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Oh, great. More dad jokes for me. We've delivered over 15,000 jokes to over 3 million listeners, and man, the postage fees are killing us. Listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. The Daily Show podcast has everything you need to stay on top of today's news and pop culture. You get hilarious satirical takes on entertainment, politics, sports, and more from John and the team of correspondents and contributors. The podcast also has content you can't get anywhere else, like extended interviews and a roundup of the weekly headlines. Listen to The Daily Show, Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hello, from Wonder Media Network, I'm Jenny Kaplan, host of Womanica, a daily podcast that introduces you to the fascinating lives of women history has forgotten. This month, we're bringing you the stories of disappearing acts. There's the 17th century fraudster who convinced men she was a German princess. The 1950s folk singer who literally drove off into the sunset and was never heard from again. 
the First Nations activist whose kidnapping and murder ignited decades of discourse about Indigenous women's disappearances, and the young daughter of a Russian czar whose legendary escape led to even more intrigue and speculation. These stories make us consider what it means to disappear and why a woman might even want to make herself scarce. Listen to Amanica on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey fam, I'm Simone Boyce. I'm Danielle Robay. And we're the hosts of The Bright Side, a daily podcast from Hello Sunshine that's guaranteed to light up your day. Every weekday, we bring you conversations with the culture makers who inspire us. Like our recent episode with Hollywood royalty Regina and Raina King. We talked about the creative power of women's relationships. I feel like, thank God for women. Like, especially when it comes to Black women, the way we lean on our mothers, our grandmothers, our sisters, our friends. We're just each other's pulse. I mean... It's molecular, you know? Listen to The Bright Side from Hello Sunshine on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Norm J. Orenstein is a political scientist and author of It's Even Worse Than It Looks, How the American Constitutional System Collided with the New Politics of Extremism. Welcome to Fast Politics, Norm. It is so good to be with you, Molly. And at this horribly crazy time in America and the world. This is not your first rodeo. Is that fair? (laughs) I think it's fair to say it's not my first or my second or my third, but yeah. Producer Jesse and I were talking about you and we were like, he seems like angry Norm Orenstein. I think of you as like a serious guy, but I feel like you're a little more irritated than usual. Will you talk to us about that? Sure. I can try and psychoanalyze myself. Yes, please. A part of it, Molly, is that a large portion of my career has been spent trying to build up, improve, and make function our institutions of government. And recognizing that a lot of this stuff doesn't happen quickly, even when lots of people agree that we're doing the right thing. Just as one example, I started to push for an independent ethics operation in Congress more than 30 years ago, actually even longer than that. It met a lot of resistance, kept pushing. And eventually, at least in the House, got the Office of Congressional Ethics. It is imperfect, but the fact is... It exists. Yeah, it exists. And no institution, whether it is in government or medicine or the law, as we've seen with the inability to sanction criminals who happen to be lawyers, as we've seen with cosmetology, people just can't easily police their own. But we finally got something done, and I felt good about that, and I felt good about other things uh, to improve institutions. When you see them falling apart, and when you see the norms that are supposed to keep the institutions and the system together failing, when you see two political parties that I used to work with both of them pretty intently and intensely turn into one traditional political party and one radical fundamentalist cult. It makes me frustrated and angry. And so I, you know, some of it is I need a catharsis when things that should be going differently are not. Yeah. One of the things that I've been really struck by with these Republicans is, for example, they seem to have taken a sharp turn against ethics of any kind. An example that I would like to bring up is Senator Bob Menendez, a Democrat who they refuse to condemn because if they get on that wagon, they'll lose too many people. Well, we know that's true with Menendez, although I have to also say that I find Chuck Schumer's unwillingness to call for Menendez to resign a little frustrating as well. But most Democrats in the Senate and many others have taken off after Menendez. Let's use another example here, though, that we find day after day after day. And that is Clarence Thomas, who got a quote unquote loan from a wealthy friend of something like two hundred and seventy plus thousand dollars to buy his fancy RV 
that he's bragged about. And of course, in the hagiographic documentary about how wonderful he is, he was there with the RV talking about how he's more comfortable in the parking lot of a Walmart with real people. Uh, and of course, we know that he's far more comfortable on private jets, uh, eating caviar and drinking uh, $1,000 bottles of wine. But he got this loan and never repaid it. We know that Clarence Thomas got $150,000 from Harlan Crow to pay for the schooling for his nephew, whom he has treated like a son. We also know that Clarence Thomas got a $5,000 contribution for that purpose from somebody else. He declared the $5,000 and never declared the $150,000, which makes it clear he knew that it was uh, wrong and a violation, uh, very likely of the law, but certainly of any ethical standards. And every day, Ted Cruz, joined by many, many others, praises Clarence Thomas as one of the greatest people uh, on earth, not a word of criticism. The same with Sam Alito, who may be even more corrupt than Clarence Thomas. So what we've seen is a party that's become a cult that also believes that their end justifies any means, illegal means, undemocratic means, unethical means, and no one steps up, maybe every once in a while with the possible exception of Mitt Romney. But other than those who have left in horror, the Liz Cheney's and Bill Crystal's of the world, if we look at elected representatives, they're all culpable in this criminal scheme. When you think about this MAGA Mike, this new Speaker of the House, he's quite smart. He reminds me of a kind of, if Sidney Powell looked <laughs> like Paul Ryan, discuss. Yeah. So Matt Gates, of course, is smiling and laughing because the fact is, having engineered this scheme to begin with, to get rid of Kevin McCarthy and bring in somebody who was as extreme as him, what he knew was that if he and his mega mob basically objected to every nominee coming forward that didn't fit entirely their purest pattern of a radical extremist, that eventually the less lunatic members of the Republican conference would cave and let them get the person they wanted. And that worked. What we know about Mike Johnson, other than the fact that he's singularly unqualified to be Speaker of the House because he has no clue what it means to be Speaker of the House. He's hardly been in the House at all, much less in any kind of position where he's close to the responsibilities or decisions that have to be made by a Speaker. But far more significant is that he is a fundamentalist Christian nationalist extremist. And the idea that every single Republican in the House would vote for this guy is mind-boggling. And it tells me two things, Molly. I mean, the first is that it's not just Donald Trump. Obviously, Donald Trump had a lot to do with killing Tom Emmer, right. who uh, all the bad choices was the least worst. And he killed him not just because Emmer had voted to uh, certify the 2020 election, but also because he knew that from, I'm sure, from conversations with others in the House, Emmer would go down and that he could look like the kingmaker here again. But we also know that Emmer's support for same-sex marriage was another nail in his speakership coffin. Which is insane. Yeah. You know, you have somebody coming up to you saying, you don't have to answer to me, you have to answer to Jesus because you're for these horrible things. So instead, they got somebody who wants to criminalize same-sex sex and have a, a national don't-say-gay law who has come out with hatred towards trans people and... That fits their bill right now. But the other part of this that really needs to be emphasized is that we not only have these extremists, but everybody else who doesn't fit that descriptor, none of them are moderates, and it still drives me up a wall. Another part of what makes me unhappy is, and I saw this yesterday over and over on CNN and even on MSNBC, referring to some of the House Republicans as moderates. There isn't a sick moderate, but there are some who are not crazy, and they're all moral cowards. They go along with this. 
And I saw this morning uh, that there was a no labels phone call with some of these uh, problem solver. And I use that term very, very loosely, cynically. Republicans going on the no labels call, which was simply to try to mollify their billionaire Republican funders who are trying to make sure that Joe Biden will lose even if he wins more votes and more states. And so you've got some of the these so-called moderates saying, oh, you know, he's a really good guy. He's not going to behave that way. He doesn't really mean that stuff, which is all a bunch of crap. They're going along with it. So they're no better than the Matt Gateses or Marjorie Taylor Greens or Lauren Boebert's or Virginia Foxes, and that list is a very, very long one. Were you struck by though those those backbenchers going nuts? I mean, that group. What you know? There's a clip that went viral of a journalist saying, "You know, did you believe that the 2020 election was stolen?" And they started screaming at her. And Virginia Fox was like, shut up. I mean, it's been three weeks of these backbenchers really taking the spotlight. And and it's not an impressive group. You know, I, I often will say that the lunatic fringe is now the vast majority. And one of the things that's so depressing, Molly, is that you look at this collection of people and then you look at the farm team. You look at who's coming up, the next generation the people who are in state legislatures, on city councils, now increasingly on school boards, and they make this group look like Abraham Lincoln. We're not going to get better anytime soon. And the only thing that may help is if they suffer a withering defeat in the 2024 elections. But with that, given that they have allies, to say the least, on the Supreme Court, we now see that North Carolina is about to implement an absolutely outrageous hyperpartisan gerrymander that could cost Democrats three seats there that may you know be balanced a little bit by gaining a seat in Louisiana and perhaps one in Alabama but you know so many of these districts are rigged and the system is so tribal now in the country that while I think the Democrats will recapture the House, it's no sure thing. But let me say that if we somehow skate through the presidential contest and there are no, no labels, Cornell West worry me a, a good deal. If Democrats don't recapture the House and if Mike Johnson is able to hold on and not suffer the fate of all these other Republican leaders because he isn't purist enough in the end, we're going to have a leader in the election denying group that tried to overturn the election in 2020 running the House and very possibly overturning the results of the 2024 election. So the stakes in the House could not be higher right now, not just for the immediate term, whether we have an extended government shutdown, cut out the legs from under Zelensky and Ukraine and benefit Vladimir Putin or begin to move towards truly destructive policies that would undermine almost everything that we do in government and protecting our democracy. But we could lose it all if we're not vigilant and work hard next year. We just keep coming to this precipice of democracy. The thing that I worry about a lot is that these Republicans really are so hot to hold on to power. And we talked about this with the Supreme Court. It feels like there's not, they just aren't bound by the same stuff the rest of us are. Oh, I, I think that's absolutely the case. The rules don't matter. And, you know, the, the way I, I will often frame this is that the Constitution, the laws, the rules are kind of the exoskeleton of our political system. But the norms are like the tendons and the ligaments. And if they wither, the whole thing falls apart. And we now have a group of people for whom none of these other principles matters. It is truly the ends justify the means. And the fact that they have allies in the courts, that they are able to exploit the seams in the political system and a political system that is heavily tilted towards the minority but that they've used crowbars to make even more uh, of that tilt work is a very frightening thing. It's true that Donald Trump was an accelerant of this process. He didn't start it 
that started a long time before he came on the scene. Some of these elements, I should say, go back before any of us were born. One of the things that I'm trying to do now is get injected, at least into the mainstream, the idea of enlarging the House of Representatives. I mention this because effectively the size which grew every 10 years as the population grew was fixed at 435 in 1910 informally, formally in 1929. But if you go back and look at why they wouldn't keep enlarging the House The fundamental reason is that we had all of these immigrants coming from Eastern Europe into through Ellis Island and occupying the Northeast and the Midwest. And we had former slave families who left the South and moved up to the North. And the conservatives, then Democrats, now they are all Republicans, figured that they could limit the power of these people coming in by capping the size of the House and not letting them get more districts and more political power. And you go back even further. We had a a Dakota territory that became a North Dakota and a South Dakota. You had a Virginia that became a Virginia and a West Virginia. Why? So that conservative areas could have more representation in the Senate and more leverage. So, you know, the manipulation of the process often with what are, you know, on the surface legitimate means, but for illegitimate ends goes way back. But when I look at it now, you know, we're almost at a point, for example, where 70% of Americans will live in just 15 of our 50 states. That's because people congregate to those states where the economic dynamism gives them opportunities. Two thirds of our GDP comes from those 15 states. But if you flip that around, not only does it mean more distortion in the Electoral College, but it means that 30% of Americans will elect 70 U.S. senators, enough to veto anything, to block action if they don't like it. And it's not that, you know, the small states are all Republican and the big states are all controlled by Democrats. But that 30% don't reflect at all the diversity of the country or its economic dynamism or its larger political views. So our elections are on the road to becoming illegitimate for most people, even if Donald Trump disappears from the scene very, very soon. And these people who are now running things are going to be able to manipulate the system even more to get their way, including having stacked the deck with judges who they've deliberately picked to be young enough that they can be there for decades, even if they lose political power. So how do I put this? We're fucked. Norm Ornstein, thank you. (laughs) Have a nice day, Molly. Ian Bremmer is the president of the Eurasia Group. Welcome back to Fast Politics, Ian. Thank you, Molly. Good to be with you. So it feels like a moment to have you to talk about, you know, I feel like Americans are so, or at least this is my experience, America-centric. And then all of a sudden we remember that there's like a whole world out there and what happens in it actually affects us. I, I feel like this was a moment where it was like a shift back to foreign policy, if that makes any sense. First of all, you know I love you, Molly. So I don't want to start. I don't want to start by disagreeing with you, but I have to. Tell me. Because for the last almost 20 months, the United States has focused an enormous amount on the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Right, right, right. And I will tell you that for the last 2 weeks no one's asked me about it. Not at all. Yeah. It's been thrown completely off the headlines, but it's enormously relevant and we do care about it in the sense that we've been thinking about it and talking about it. And it went from being a pretty bipartisan issue to becoming a partisan issue. I will say that it certainly, when we talk about Israel-Palestine, not only do Americans have strong views about it, but they are incredibly divided views. And they're also views that are very different from almost everybody else in the rest of the world. And both of those things are important here. How are they different from everyone else in the world? So I believe that it is almost inevitable that the Israelis are going to engage in a ground war against Hamas that will be long and brutal with the effort of destroying that terrorist organization. And the United States, while privately the U.S. has been saying, we'd really rather if you didn't do this, please delay humanitarian support. I strongly believe that when the Israelis engage in a ground war, the Americans will provide full-throated support 
for that ground war. And indeed, the U.S. may well also be fighting in the region. There will be attacks, more attacks against American troops in the region. That will happen. That will expand. And it's reasonably likely that the United States will be directly involved in the fighting. That will absolutely not be the position of almost anyone else in the world. The vast majority of countries will oppose a ground war. Even the vast majority of democracy will oppose a ground war. So that's one way the Americans are very different. And then inside the United States, of course, it is true that Israel is America's strongest ally in the Middle East, and that's been true for a long time. But young people, Generation Z in the U.S., are actually much more sympathetic to the Palestinian cause, while the rest of the Americans are far more aligned with Israel. And that, of course, we're seeing play out on campuses and on social media and everything else is going to be a lot more of that. So I want to stop here for a minute and just pause and ask you why you think this is inevitable. There are many reasons. I mean, the reason I think it's inevitable is because I believe that the Israeli war cabinet has already made the decision to go. And they have been delaying under a lot of pressure, particularly from the U.S. The most important reason they have delayed is because the Americans want to get more defensive capacity in the region, securing U.S. bases, ships, and the like, because the Americans know that attacks against Americans are going to go way up once you have tanks streaming into Gaza. That's the main reason why they're delaying. They're also trying to get more hostages freed through indirect negotiations involving the Qatari government and the Hamas political leadership that is based in Doha. And then also there is efforts to get more humanitarian aid. And I wish that was a principal reason that was driving the delay. It is not, but it is a reason. But I think the decision has been made. Now, if you're asking me, why has the decision been made? I think there, it's the fact that Israel has been so traumatized by what happened on October 7th. Netanyahu is responsible for the failures of Israeli national security. He's still in charge, ultimately calling the shots, and he needs to prove himself, wants to prove himself. But it's not just that. It's the fact that everyone in Israel knows someone personally who's been killed or as a hostage. So 360,000 Israelis have been called up and mobilized to fight in the war. That's 4% of the population. When I'm talking to Israeli leaders, they are constantly being interrupted by air sirens and having to go into their safe rooms and their sleep is being interrupted. And they're being, all these demands are being made by the families of those that have been killed and those that are held hostage. I mean, I think that this is a level of emotional trauma that is really inconceivable for you and me, but that I'm trying to understand as the American government is working with these folks and saying, look, they're just not thinking strategically. This is about retribution. It's an emotional response. I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, the thinking and what's happened. And this reminds us all of like what it was like in New York after 9-11, certainly where there was a sense that they just it was sort of incalculatable. But what I'm curious about is the hostages. I mean, do we have any more of a sense of we have four hostages? There are 200 plus plus maybe 214 I've read. Do we have any sense of like, will more be released? Do you get a sense of that? We think there are over 220 hostages. We also believe a fair number of them are already dead because they're being held in a tunnel network inside northern Gaza, the ability to free them through a search and rescue mission is negligible. So the only way they're getting out is through diplomacy. I absolutely believe that more will be freed, but I mean, we're not talking about all of them. We're probably not talking about most of them. Keep in mind, I mean, there's, there's different types of hostages. You've got civilians, and you have active members of the Israeli military, the latter very hard to see going anywhere unless there were massive numbers of Palestinians that were freed. And I have a hard time seeing the Israelis doing that. But I also know that there is a willingness on the part of the war cabinet to put those lives at risk through a ground war. This is not the same calculus 
as was experienced by Israel before October 7th? And how could it be? I want to pull back and talk about the region because it's such a complicated, interconnected region that will have enormous economic consequences for all of us. And also this war, I think there's a lot of anxiety, certainly that it could mushroom. So what does it look like in the Arab world? Like, where do you see potential support coming from for the Palestinians? Where do you see the potential support coming to the Israelis? And do you think that some of this happened because of the normalization of relationships between Israel and Saudi Arabia? It absolutely came from the broader normalization of Israel with everybody while the Palestinians were being forgotten. The number of people that are complicit and responsible for the Palestinians being screwed is so substantial. It's the corrupt local Palestinian governments, both Hamas and the Palestinian Authority. I mean, look how much military equipment Hamas has and just how little has been spent on the development of the Palestinian people. It is Israel taking more of their land illegally in the West Bank and promoting Hamas as a counterbalance to Fatah. It is the Gulf states and others happy to work with the Israelis for trade and investment and tourism while the Palestinian situation gets worse and worse and not doing anything about it. If the Americans and the Europeans focusing zero on this issue, everyone's complicit. Everyone's complicit. And so clearly, you know, when my friend Antonio Gutierrez, the secretary general of the UN, who was out there immediately condemning Hamas for terrorist activity, but when he says, let's talk about the context, that's the context he's talking about. It remind me immediately of, of JFK, saying that, you know, if people don't have a means for peaceful revolution, they will engage in violent revolution. And, and literally everyone in the region and the world was complicit in giving the Palestinians no outlet for peaceful revolution. So let's talk about what the larger landscape looks like. This is not the way it was during the Yom Kippur War. This is not Israel versus the world you know, versus the Arab world. is a different posture. And can you talk to me about what it looks like there? Like, where does everyone stand on this with the neighbor nations? The neighbor states that have normalized relations with Israel, both formally and informally in the case of Saudi, want to maintain that relationship. It it ain't going to get any better. It will get a little worse because there'll be a lot of pressure from the Arab street. But I mean, the Saudis came out and condemned both Israel and Hamas. Which is right, which is unusual. Staggering from the MBS perspective, right? That's a big deal. And Israel is in, as you mentioned, you're so right to say this, Molly, that their geopolitical position is so much better than it was. In 1973, Israel faced an existential war literally for its survival. There might be no state of Israel. There's no such concern here. Not Yahoo failed the Israeli people. He should be removed. They have the capacity to defend their borders. And the polling says that the Israeli people blame him for this as well. They should. They blame him. In fact, far more Jews in Israel blame Netanyahu than want a ground war. And I think that is a message that should be delivered loudly. Like, what? how do the Israelis feel about all of this? In the same way that you want to know how do the Palestinians feel about Hamas and they're not all terrorists. Like not all Israelis support what's been happening on the ground in Israel. That's why you've had these massive demonstrations inside the country, almost all peaceful over the last months and months and months. But the problem here is that this war is going to expand. It's not just a ground war in Gaza. There will be fighting in the West Bank. Dozens and dozens of Palestinians have already lost their lives in the last couple of weeks in the West Bank. That will expand. There will be more fighting with Hezbollah. That could become a new front in the war. There will be more attacks against Americans in the region from Iranian proxies like the Houthis in Yemen and like the Shia militants in Iraq. And the United States is very likely to be directly involved in that fighting. So this is very different from Russia, Ukraine in that in two critical ways. First, that the Americans are going to be supporting the Israelis militarily kind of by themselves. And secondly, that the Americans are going to be involved in the fighting. And neither of those things have been true uh, in the last 20 months of Russia, Ukraine. So that's a really good point. Now, what does that look like for Russia and Ukraine? I mean, how do the Ukrainians sort of go from here? 
because they seem worried. They should be worried. This has been a great, a great two weeks for Putin. The United States just put a new speaker, Mike Johnson, in place. He's overwhelmingly interested in supporting Israel. He's absolutely not interested in providing support for Ukraine. At best, the U.S. might be able to do a small fraction of what Biden asked for for the Ukrainians for the coming year. That means they can still fight a defensive war, but they can't do another counteroffensive. And the last one hasn't gone so well. I have a hard time seeing the Ukrainians taking more of their territory back than the 82% which they presently occupy. And I, I think the Europeans are going to be very worried, especially as we now enter the 2024 election season with Trump wanting to cut the Ukrainians off completely, the Europeans are going to feel much more like they need to hedge away from the United States on a bunch of these issues. They aren't as aligned on Israel. They're becoming less aligned on Ukraine. This will affect them on China too. And especially because all of this is so much more of a direct security concern for the Europeans than it is for them. Right, because it's so much closer to them. It's so much closer. They get the refugees, they get the potential for asymmetric attacks. I mean, all they, they've got to pay higher input costs, infrastructure, energy, all this stuff. And it does feel like Netanyahu is not interested in doing business with the president of Ukraine. Oh, God, yeah. Uh, you've got to remember that Netanyahu has not supported U.S. and European sanctions, has refused to join them against Russia, he has not provided Ukraine with any military support, unlike the Europeans and the Americans. Zelensky, of course, is himself Jewish, and after the October 7th attacks, he immediately denounced Hamas, expressed solidarity with Israel, saw this as an opportunity, and offered to come down to Israel in solidarity Netanyahu said no, it was not the time, and hours later took a phone call from Putin, who has been supporting Hamas. So, I mean, clearly the Israelis are not remotely aligned with the Americans on the Ukraine issue. So Putin will not be involved in being anti-Israel? I do think that the Israel-Russia relationship has been significantly damaged. There are members of the Netanyahu government that have actively denounced Putin because of his support for Hamas. Not military or financial support, but his rhetorical support. But Netanyahu will be very careful on this issue going forward, and I expect Putin will as well. Putin will be aligned with China and the Gulf states in terms of what they're doing at the Security Council and broadly diplomatically. I don't see the Russians as being directly involved in the fighting on the ground. I don't see that. I see them taking advantage of the chaos and the vacuum that comes from this, and certainly it being an advantage for them as they continue this illegal war in Ukraine. Unbelievable. Thank you so much, Ian. Sure, Molly. Good to talk to you. And now your moment of fuckery. Jesse Cannon. Molly Jung Fast, Maga Mike Johnson. I think I texted this to you. I feel like we got Santos. No one knew what was coming, and now we're seeing a lot of horrors. What are you seeing with this guy? Do we get Santos? Is that like sandbagged? You got Santos? When the oppo doesn't come as fast as the candidacy. I'm going to say when the oppo doesn't drop. <laughs> right? When the oppo doesn't drop, you get Maga Mike. <laughs> so MAGA Mike, everyone's favorite, is a, I don't know, he gave an insane speech where he said his wife was busy on her knees, which I think he meant prayer, but the implication is so dicey. He's a Christian talk show host. He's like dollar store Mike Pence. And for that, <laughs> my man is our moment of fuckery. That's it for this episode of Fast Politics. Tune in every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday to hear the best minds in politics make sense of all this chaos. If you enjoyed what you've heard, please send it to a friend and keep the conversation going. And again, thanks for listening. Bring a little optimism into your life with The Bright Side, a new kind of daily podcast from Hello Sunshine, hosted by me, Danielle Robay, and me, Simone Boyce. Every weekday, we're bringing you conversations about culture, the latest trends, inspiration, and so much more. I am so excited about this podcast, The Bright Side. You guys are giving people a chance to shine a light on their lives, shine a light on a little advice that they want to share. Listen to The Bright Side on America's number one podcast network, iHeart. Open your free iHeart app and search The Bright Side. 
Hi, this is Kurt Woodsmith. You remember me from such TV comedies as That 70s Show and That 90s Show on Netflix. I'll never forget the words that my grandfather said just before he kicked the bucket. He said, watch how far I can kick this bucket. People ask me where I get my dad jokes from. I tell them to listen to the Daily Dad Jokes podcast. Listen to Daily Dad Jokes every day on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. John Stewart is back in the host chair at The Daily Show, which means he's also back in our ears on The Daily Show Ears Edition podcast. Join late night legend John Stewart and the best news team for today's biggest headlines, exclusive extended interviews, and more. Now this is a second term we can all get behind. Listen to The Daily Show Ears Edition on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to Season 9 of Next Question with me, Katie Couric. I've got some big news to share with you in our season premiere featuring the one and only Chris Jenner. Oh my gosh, congratulations. That is very, very exciting. And that's just the beginning. We'll also be joined by podcast hosts Jay Shetty, Hillary Clinton, Renee Fleming, Liz Cheney, and many more. So come on in, take a break from the incessant negativity for a weekly dose of fascinating conversations. Some of them, I promise, will actually put you in a good mood. Listen to Next Question with me, Katie Couric, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.